Well, we're continuing our series today in uh, Genesis in our series called Story Time. Last week, we got started uh, with the creation story in Genesis chapter one and two. And throughout this series, we're going to try to hit kind of the big what I would call the big stories of the Old Testament, about 15 kind of uh, large narratives that that are essential to understanding. These are stories that maybe if you grew up in Sunday school, you've you kind of vaguely remember, or you think you know, but you may have some of the details kind of mashed together. And so this is an opportunity to refresh and, and uh, learn some fresh lessons out of these stories. Biblical creation that we talked about last week is foundational to Christian doctrine because we believe that we are created by God through his word, Jesus, and answerable to our creator, Now, we don't accept the notion that we are sort of an accidental product of random self-creating forces. That's an insult to human intelligence, and it's an insult to God. And it's an insult to the the intense um, perfection and beauty and complexity of the human person. We, uh, We would say, I would say, in fact, that paganism and secularism have to teach evolution expressly so that God is excluded from any meaningful worldview. If there's no creator, then anything goes. The Bible itself frequently proclaims God as creator, that creation speaks of God. And the Apostle Paul wrote that creation is all the evidence that anyone would need to believe in God. We could say it like this. If you cannot see God in creation, it's likely you do not want to see God at all. If you, don't, if you can't see God in creation, it's, it's because you don't want to see Him. Now, if God created such a wonderful, perfect, beautiful world, why are there so many problems? Why is it such a mess? Why all the calamity and disaster and disease and terror and tyranny and environmental crises? We have droughts and floods and earthquakes and cancer and Ebola and now Zika virus. I mean, really, when is this going to stop? You've got SARS and you've got MERS and you've got H1N1 and you've got the bird flu. And now I've got to worry about Zika. Um, I'm just going to stay home in my room and keep the windows closed. No, it's, it's really okay here. Apparently we're not in trouble here. But all these problems. Now what happened to God's wonderful world? What happened? Well, it's what theologians would call the fall of humankind. The fall of humankind. We're going to read about it in Genesis chapter 3. Starting at verse 1. So if you've got a Bible, if you're going to invite you to find that, keep in mind the Bible is not a book. The Bible is a library. This library has 66 books. The first book is called Genesis, and that's where we are. So open your Bible to the first book, and we're on to chapter 3. Chapter 1, 2, 3. We're on page 4 if you're in that red Bible, and we're going to read the first 13 verses. But we're going to stand together for the reading of God's Word. That's how we like to do it here at Bethany Church. All right, let's be in Roman, uh, Genesis chapter 3, starting at verse 1. It says, The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, Did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. God said you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. Verse 4, you won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. Well, the woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted to 
the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and she ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her and she and he ate it too. And at that moment, their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. Now, verse eight. Now, when the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. And the Lord called to the man, where are you? He replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Who told you you were naked? The Lord God asked. Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? The man replied, it was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit. And I ate it. In verse 13, then the Lord God asked the woman, what have you done? The serpent deceived me, she replied. That's why I ate it. Then the Lord uh, will stop there. The serpent deceived me. That's why I ate it. Let's be seated together. We thank the Lord for his word. Well, the fall is simply this. The perfection of God's creation was broken by sin. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Christians in the city of Rome, and he put it like this. Romans 5.12 says, when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. And Adam's sin brought death. So death spread to everyone. For everyone sinned. Because of Adam's sin, we all sin. The, the, the doctrine in, in Christian understanding is what we would call original sin. We're all born with a, now with a sin nature, with a propensity to sin, with a, with a, a natural movement towards sin. No matter who we are, we all sin. And it all started with Adam. But how did this happen? I mean, how did a perfect situation go sideways so quickly? How did Eve and Adam give in to temptation? How do any of us give in so easily to the temptation of sin? Well, it really comes down to one word. That word is pride. We'd say the cause of the fall is pride. The cause of the fall is pride. The serpent is the devil, Satan. He is a deceiver. He's a liar to his core. But rather than beginning with a a bold-faced lie, he begins by introducing doubt. Did God really say? He, He brings this one simple question. Rather than rejecting the serpent's advances, Eve attempted to reason with the devil. Friends, you cannot reason with a liar. You can't have an intelligent, reasonable argument with a liar. And the devil is a liar. And having gotten her hooked into a conversation, he appealed then to her pride. Oh, you won't die. He lied. You'll be like God. That sounds really good. right? And his tactics haven't changed much, the devil. First, he he starts with a question. Did God really say, did God really say be faithful in your marriage? Did God really say don't take what isn't yours? Did God really say uh, honor your parents? Did God really say, etc.? Well, oh, come on. You won't die. You'll know better. You'll be enlightened. You'll be in charge of your own destiny or whatever it is. You won't die. You'll be like God. In Romans 1, verse 25, the Apostle Paul was writing of those who reject God. And he he wrote it like this. He says, they exchange the truth about God 
for the lie and worshiped and served the created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. They exchanged the truth about God for the lie. And the lie is this. Do things your own way and you'll be enlightened. Everything will be fine if you do it your way. Let's not forget that Satan is created. He was an angel of the highest order and he sought to usurp God's authority. You can read about it in Isaiah and Ezekiel as well. And he, he was cast out of God's presence. The devil has one kind of goal. He's out to steal God's glory. He wants to rob from God what is rightfully God's. And he can't have it for himself. And because of that, he'll do all he can to destroy those whom God loves, to destroy those who do give glory to God. He can, in, in you is the glory of God expressed as you follow Jesus. And the devil wants to steal all that away. Because he hates that God gets glory. He hates that God gets honor. But still, I I don't know about you, but I wonder, well, how could Eve have fallen? And then Adam, I mean, they were in such a perfect environment. How did this this happen? I think there's some vulnerability in Eve's part that you want to notice. First, that she was apparently alone. She was all by herself. And a little unclear on God's instructions. Things were a little fuzzy for her. And I think we're all prone to sin when we're isolated, aren't we? When we're alone, it's, it's, it's just in, we're just in a more vulnerable place. We're more likely to slip up when we're by ourselves. It's one of the reasons why a small uh, connection group is so valuable to us. It helps us to continue to follow on with God. And then the natural appetite that God had given Eve for pleasure, because remember... Taste buds are God's idea, right? That's, that's kind of the simplest sense of like God's idea of pleasure. You eat something really good. Oh, fantastic. That's, that was all God's idea. And God's gift of pleasure to her had been distorted in her life. So rather than looking at all the fruit that she could have, everything that was available to her, she fixed her gaze on the one thing that was off limits. It was good fruit, it just wasn't for her. I don't know about you. It's, it's like, uh, you know, it's the, it's the wet paint, you know, um, syndrome. The wet paint sign. I mean, even at my age, I cannot walk past a wet paint sign. Do not touch. Without, just, I just touch a little bit. Just, just a little bit. Just. I was ever in the student center and there's, in the student center, in the back of the student center, there's two kind of office-y type rooms and they both have a big sign there that says, do not enter. And I was trying to help them fix something in there just before the service. And, and uh, one of our seniors said, he goes, you know, this sign on here, he came wandering out of one of those offices. And he said, this sign is just like what you said in the sermon. Saying, do not enter makes me want to see what's in here. It's so true. It's so true. So she saw this good fruit, good but not for her. She saw the fruit look tasty and beautiful. And the idea of becoming wise really appealed to her. What she had wasn't enough. We share the same struggle. First John chapter two, verse 16 in the NIV puts it this way. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life comes not from the father, but from the world. Or another translation says the pride in our possessions comes not from the father, but from the world. This is this is Eve. The lust of the flesh. Right. Oh, I think that's going to taste really good. And the lust of the eyes. Boy, that's so beautiful. Right. And the pride of life. Mm, why I'm going to be wise uh, comes not from the Father, but from the world. 
as Jim Gaffigan says, it definitely couldn't have been an apple because no one looks at an apple and says, hmm, that's going to be really good. So um, it was some kind of fruit that was just beautiful and delicious and, and obviously appealing to her. And Adam and Eve were already instructed to rule the earth, but that just suddenly wasn't enough for them. They, they wanted to rule themselves as well. They wanted to be on par with God. Honestly, we just don't do well when we make ourselves our own boss. And so with that bite, they lost their innocence and their fellowship with God. And that's the consequence of the fall. So if we had the cause of the call, which is pride, the, the consequence of the fall is separation. Right? Did you ever, remember when you were a kid, you, you, something happened like you broke a window or you damaged something that wasn't yours? Did it ever happen to anybody? You, you, you got, got in a little bit of trouble? Anybody? Yeah, you, you could turn right now to the person beside you and say, here's what I did. You can do that right now. Turn to the person beside you. Yeah. Yeah. Now, what did you do when that happened? What was your first instinct? One, two, three, run! Right? Isn't that your first instinct? I was about 30 and I was, I was, I fancied that I was going to become a golfer of some kind and I was practicing in the backyard wiffle balls and I, I chipped, I was practicing my chip shots and a wiffle ball went over the fence and hit the neighbor's second story window. I'm over 30 years old and what did I do? I dropped that, that golf club and I ran into the house. I thought, what am I doing? But boy, I was, when we sin, when we do something like that, what's our first instinct? We want to hide. We want to get away. We want to cover up. It's just, it's just in our, in our nature to do that. And the effect of sin, of their sin, had at least three immediate results for Adam and Eve. And those results still affect us today. The first immediate result is that they were ashamed. There was shame at nakedness. Right? If you go back to the end of chapter 2, verse 25, it says, Now the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. This was sort of a pure innocence in the garden. But suddenly, and Scripture is not specific on why they suddenly felt ashamed, but this absolute vulnerability of nakedness suddenly became a liability to them. Instead of enjoying one another as God had intended, their nakedness was now like, oh, you're different from me, and therefore potentially a subject of ridicule. It drove them apart and they were ashamed. The second immediate consequence of the, of the fall was self-covering. Self-covering. They made these rudimentary clothes out of fig leaves. And the fig leaf, the fig leaf is symbolic of our, um, our own efforts at self-righteousness. Right? The attempt to be good enough to be presentable to God. If I just, if I just try harder, if I just go to church, if I just give a little more, if I just dress nice, if I just kind of help at the rescue mission, if I just do some good deed, you know, then I'll be presentable enough to God. And it never works. Your attempts and my attempts at, at self-righteousness, at covering up our sin and covering up our shame, does nothing to produce what we really want, which is forgiveness and freedom. You want, to, you want to have freedom. You want to be able to breathe. You want to live your life not looking over your shoulder, wondering when it's going to catch up to you. And covering yourself cannot fix that. All that you know what all that does? Self-covering, you know what it creates? It creates religion. And religion kills. cannot bring life. And the third result was separation. This is immediate. Separation from God, separation from each other, and then later in the chapter, separation 
from the garden. But don't blame God for this one. God did not withdraw from Adam and Eve in the garden. God pursued them. God went looking for them. It was they who withdrew from God. It was they who separated themselves from God. Anytime you've sinned and your inclination is to get separation from God, you know, God's looking for you. He's coming for you. He's asking, where are you? I want to have fellowship with you. Come back. Every time. They were pulling away from God, blaming each other, blaming the serpent, even blaming God for their predicament. That's ah, the serpent. It's, it's this woman you gave me. That's blaming God. So they, were, they dealt immediately with shame, self-covering, and separation. As an aside, I would just say this, that if you have, a, a, say, a good friend or family member, someone in your life who you've noticed has been pulling away from you, uh, don't get mad at them. Don't get angry. Don't chew them out. I want you to love them. I want you to pray for them. I want you to invite them back in your life. Keep reaching into their life because there's a good possibility that their own sin has caused them to pull away. Pull away from the very relationships that can help them. And in our inclination is to say, well, fine, I don't need them. Well, you, they need you. They're separating for that reason. Or maybe, you, maybe this is you right now. You've just kind of shut down in relationships. You've sort of pulled back. You're kind of hiding because of your sin. I would just say, just reach out. Get some help. You need that. You need to get, that, get past that separation. Because the ultimate consequence of the fall is separation in relationships from God and from one another. Now, there's, there's more in this chapter. So I want to pick up um, what now we've been talking about the fall. I want to talk about the curse. And we pick that up in verse 14. If you want to follow along with me, I'll read 14 to 19. Verse 14 says, Then the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all wild animals, domestic and wild. You will crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live. And I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Verse 16. And then he said to the woman, I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy and in pain you will give birth and you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. And to the man, he said, since you listened to your wife and ate from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, the ground is cursed because of you all, excuse me, all your life. You will struggle to scratch a living from it. Verse 18. It will grow thorns and thistles for you, though you will eat of its grains. By the sweat of your brow, you will have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you are made. For you were made from dust and to dust you will return. The curse of the fall is death. The curse of the fall is death. There are four victims of the curse. The serpent... The woman, the earth, and the man. Four victims. And the worst of the curse for us is death. The serpent's curse is twofold. For the snake, and again, I don't quite understand how the snake was able to talk to the woman. Was there a time when when animals and, and people could communicate somehow? Was it simply the devil inhabiting the form of the, of the serpent? The serpent who at that time was not a snake, but was some other form of a creature. Uh, this could be where, um, you know, something like dragon mythology is so consistent across cultures that maybe that was the form. We don't know. Uh, you can read about dragons in Job chapters 38 and 39, I believe it is. But the serpent's curse is, is twofold. He's, he's physically transformed into a legless reptile. But for the devil, 
The curse is his future demise, his future destruction, as you see in verse 15, where he says he's going to create uh, conflict, hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. It's personal between the devil and, and the offspring of the woman, which is Jesus. It's going to be a personal battle. It's going to battle. It's going to come down to the two of them, which it does at the cross. The promise is that one day the woman's offspring will crush his head and that offspring is Jesus. Now, the woman's curse is the pain of childbirth. So every time a woman in labor yells to her husband, this is your fault. You did this to me. Um, Some of us have heard those words. And I could have actually said, no, don't blame me. Blame Eve. It's all her fault. But that would not have been wise to do that. That's the moment you just take it like a man. Say, I'm so sorry. Uh, She's also cursed with relational conflict or struggle with her husband. She will strive to be in charge and he's going to struggle with being overly controlling. That's the tension that's still happening today in marriages. Often a battleground for control thanks to the curse. This is going to be another good reason to come to couples night. I think we have about maybe 15, 10 or 15 spots left. I invite you to come to Couples Night. We're going to talk about good relationships. Marriages are a battleground for control thanks to the curse. Now, the curse on the earth is this harsh reality of thorns and thistles. Work and care for the earth, no longer purely a joyful task, but it's painful. And it's a cruel irony that Jesus at the cross was crowned with a wreath of thorns, those very thorns that came as a result of our sin. Jesus bore your sins to the cross and the thorn crown represents his sacrifice for that as the blood poured down his face. The curse in the earth means that work, quite honestly, is hard. Work itself is not a curse. Work was was given to us in the creation order. Adam was to, to work and care for the earth. But now it's hard. It's become sweaty and difficult. And rather than being in a complementary relationship with nature, it's an adversarial relationship. Those of you who are gardeners and farmers, those of you getting out this spring to start cleaning up the garden, you know exactly what I mean. Every year you've got to go after those weeds again. Every year you've got to prune those trees back. Why? Because it's an it's a, it's a adversarial relationship. It's a battle with nature. But the man's curse which is a curse for all creation. And it's a final curse is death. A return to the dust rather than an endless relationship with God. Death entered the world at the fall. By the way, this is the theological argument for a young earth creation. Evolutionists and old earth creationists look at the fossil record through the strata in in the planet and would say, well, here's where the different species developed but the problem with that is it's, it's not a consistent strata. But the other thing is that it contains evidence of death and disease, which could not have happened before sin entered the world. And so that view will conflict with the truth. You've got to reconcile, somehow reconcile those things. How did death and disease enter the world before the fall? It couldn't have. So that's part of the argument for a younger earth perspective. But there is some good news. We've got the cause, we've got the consequence, we've got the, we've got the curse, but we have the correction of the fall as well. And the correction is salvation, thanks to God, atonement for our sin. Look at the last verses there, starting at verse 20. He says, chapter 3, verse 20, Then the, then the man, Adam, named his wife Eve, because she would be the mother of all who live. 
And the Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife. And the Lord God said, let the human beings look, the human beings have become like us, knowing both good and evil. What if they reach out and take fruit from the tree of life and eat it? Then they will live forever. So the Lord God banished them from the Garden of Eden and he sent Adam out to cultivate the ground from which he had been made. And after sending them out, the Lord God stationed mighty cherubim to the east of the Garden of Eden. And he placed a flaming sword that flashed back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. The long-range correction of the fall is in verse 14, verse 15, as we've already talked about, as the serpent will himself be destroyed and defeated by Jesus. But the immediate correction for Adam and Eve is found in the clothing God made for them from animal skins. Now, until this time, no animals have been killed, either for, you know, neither for clothing nor for food. Adam and Eve had eaten only a plant-based diet. You can read it in chapter 2. It says everything had been given to them to eat. But that all changed at the fall. Now, what's the big deal with animal skins as clothing? Isn't it simply that a leather loincloth is a little more effective than a fig tree loincloth? Well, while that probably is the case, there's more to it than that. This is the first shedding of blood. This is the first time blood is spilled. Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says that the payment or the wages of sin is death. There's the the result or the cost to us of sin is death. Hebrews 9 verse 22 says that without the spilling of blood, right, without someone dying, there's no forgiveness for sin, no covering up, no remission for sin. Someone or something has to die in order for in order for us to be forgiven, in order to atone for, to pay for sin. So those first animals from which God made clothing for them were sacrificed in Adam and Eve's place. Blood was shed to cover their sin. And God himself, God himself, God himself made their covering, made their clothing. Just as in Christ, God himself made your righteousness possible in Christ. Whenever we create our own garments of righteousness, right, through religion or good behavior, or in academics, or whatever we do, whenever we create our own garments, it's a failure. But when God does it, it's perfect. The garments of righteousness in Christ. But righteousness comes at a cost. In this case, animals had to die. In our case, Jesus had to die. My question is, have you put your faith, have you put your trust, have you put your confidence in Jesus for a proper covering of righteousness? Now, there's one last act of grace. And that's the expulsion from the Garden of Eden. Yes, God was merciful to remove them from the Garden. We typically think that this was a, just the kind of the worst punishment of all. And on top of everything else, they had to leave the Garden. That was a merciful act of God. You see, there was still a tree available in the gar- center of the Garden, the Tree of Life. And God knew that if Adam and Eve were to stay in the Garden, that tree, which until that time had not been off limits to them, that tree would create a new problem. They would eat from that tree and they would live forever in the misery of sin and a fallen world. It would, it would become a snare, a burden to them. And it was truly the mercy of God that removed them from the garden to keep them away from the fruit of that tree. See, death is actually necessary for our salvation, for our redemption. So Jesus Christ, born of a woman, right, had to be physically capable of dying. 
so that he could take our sin. And so leaving the garden was the most merciful thing God could do for them and for us. Sometimes you you just feel like, particularly those of you who are parents, you feel like sometimes taking away something good from your kids is so hard to do. Sometimes it's the best thing we can do. For them, it would have been a, a terrible tragedy. So our struggle with sin and the brokenness of a fallen world continues until Christ returns. There's no utopia coming this side of Jesus' return. No politician is going to fix it. No system is going to solve it. No economic upsurge is going to fix the problems. We're both victims and participants in the fall. And we live with the curse and the consequences. But we're also benefactors of the correction of the fall. Jesus defeated death. We don't need to be afraid. And he promises an end even to sin and to sickness and death. He's going to create a new heaven and to create a new earth. And we will have this life to decide to choose either to ignore God's instructions, continue doing things ourselves, be self-enlightened and self-righteous in our own way, or we can trust Jesus for our forgiveness and trust him for our righteous covering, follow him and look forward to an eternal future with him. Friend, you do not need to live with shame and separation from God. You just don't. You don't need to work so hard at covering up your failure. You don't need to live your life looking over your shoulder. Jesus came to deal with all of that. I want you to come to Christ, confess your sin to Him, be forgiven, be made righteous in Him, follow Him, let Him give you new life. Let's pray. Gracious God in heaven, I thank you for preserving this account for us. Scripture, and I know there's questions we have about some of the details. But you've given us exactly what we need to know. And I thank you that in spite of that horrendous mistake, in spite of that rebellion of Adam and Eve in the garden, you even then, immediately at that moment, made a way of salvation. You didn't leave them to, to linger in their shame and in their suffering, but you gave them a covering of righteousness. You've, you preserved them from making further mistakes. And even then, you began the promise of a Savior in Jesus Christ. And I thank you for that. God, you pursued them in your sin, just like you've pursued me in my sin. And you've pursued, pursued each one of us. God, I pray that even in these days to come, these, these, uh, in this next week, Lord, you would just show us those places that we need to bring to you and find freedom and forgiveness. Um, as heads are bowed, I, I just want to give this opportunity as well. If you've never given your life to Jesus, I'd love for you, for you to have that opportunity. To say, yes, I want to be forgiven and I want to be free and I want to live with shame anymore. I want to be a new person in Christ. If that's you, you say, I want to give my life to Jesus today. Would you just give me a bit of a wave and we'll pray with you after the service. All right. For the rest of us, the challenge is to say, what am I going to do? Am I going to keep trying to be self-good, self-covered, self-righteous? Or am I going to trust the righteousness of Christ and bring it all to him? God, just forgive us for all those times we hide. Give us the courage to bring everything to you and to be set free. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.